Well, first, I want to apologize for my voice. Tis the season for me, and this time of year, I struggle with the voice and losing it, so hang in there, and I apologize for the pain it causes to your ears. <laughs> Secondly, I know that um, my brother Chaz is listening to the sermon down in Harlem, and always love to hear. I know he sends his comments to Christina about the sermon, so I get I get you know critical words from him a week later. And uh, but Chaz, I want to let you know, brother, that we're praying for you and for a full recovery of your back in surgery. Well, this morning is the first Sunday of Advent, and in this season, we turn away from whatever other studies we may be having, and we set our minds now to the celebration of Christmas. And this begins the church calendar. There are many ways to measure time, and in many ways, we all share a similar calendar, but we are Christians after all. And, and we are, as we've talked about even in our Sunday school sessions, we, are, we have our feet in two timelines. We have our feet in two calendars. And for us, this calendar, the church calendar, begins this week as we enter into the season of Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas. And it's a time where multiple things are happening. It's a time for us to look back so that we can look forward properly. It's a time to remind ourselves that we are looking forward, that the, the, there's still more to the story, and yet we've seen the end of the story in the coming of our Savior. In Christ's birth and in his death and in his resurrection, we have already seen the end of the story. And yet the end of the story is still in the future for us as we move toward it. That's, <laughs> that's a nice tune. Um, so for us in Advent, it's a time for us to look back to Israel and their hopes of a coming Savior. But it's a time to stand in their shoes in a, another sense because we too are looking forward. We have an Advent hope ourselves. Right? We are looking forward to the coming of Messiah, just as they were looking forward to the coming of Messiah. So in, in a very similar way, we stand in their shoes. So you will see many of the texts, the Old Testament texts that are cho chosen in the lectionary, are texts that are yearning. They are looking forward to the coming of deliverance, to the coming of their Messiah, to the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And we are to identify with those because though we don't stand in the place of the Old Testament, nonetheless, in our new covenant perspective, we like they are also looking forward. And hence, you will hear in the New Testament readings, in the Gospels and in the Epistles, texts regarding the coming destruction on Jerusalem, as we read today, but also texts that are looking forward to the second coming. So in the season of Advent, most of the texts don't have to do necessarily with the birth of Jesus, those come in the Christmas text, but they have to do with our Advent hope, namely that of the second coming. Well, of the several texts, and you'll remember that on this first Sunday of Advent, the texts are from Jeremiah 33, Psalm 25, which I'll read here in a second, from Luke 21, and from 1 Thessalonians 3. Those are the four readings for this week. <clears throat> and we have chosen to preach out of the Psalm text of these four lectionary readings. Psalm 25, I'll go ahead and read that as we did not use it as our Old Testament reading today. Page 492. Let me read Psalm 25 and let's hear this prayer of David and we'll use it as our 
Advent text this morning. Hear now the word of God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are forever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my afflictions and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. David, though he is praying, in some sense, a personal prayer as the king of Israel, is also praying a corporate prayer because as the king, he's not just a guy. He's not just an individual believer. He's a representative believer, right? He leads Israel in her journey as well. And so his prayer for himself is for himself, but it's also for all of Israel. And it's a prayer for guidance. It's a prayer for deliverance. It's an Advent prayer as he is looking for God to come and deliver him. And in some sense, his scope is down to an immediate problem. He's got real enemies surrounding him, and he needs deliverance in this particular crisis. And yet, through that particular crisis, his eyes are drawn out to a greater problem, a problem for all of Israel. This isn't just for him. In verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. So there are personal problems, and then there are these bigger corporate problems that all of Israel is dealing with, and he is looking for redemption for himself, deliverance out of this particular issue, but also this is just one example of a greater problem and a greater need for deliverance that is for all of Israel, and he's longing for that great deliverance, and that is that Advent hope that he and faithful Israel had, that God was going to come one day and deliver them out of their troubles, that he was going to keep and fulfill his covenant promises. And you and I stand in a moment in history where we have seen David's prayer answered. 
Israel has been redeemed out of all her troubles. We've seen it in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet here we are in troubles. We face personal troubles. There are corporate troubles that the church all around the world has to deal with. We still live in an age of curse. We still live in an age of sorrow. We still have to deal with death. We still have to deal with sadness. All of these things are still here, and yet we've seen the answer to David's prayer, and yet there's still a longing, and therefore we can identify with David's prayer, and we can take up David's prayer and make it our own, even on this side of Christ, but with, in some sense, new exuberation, right? We can, we, exuberance, we can, we can pray with supreme confidence because we have seen David's prayer answered, and therefore we know our prayer, not hope or think, but we know our prayer indeed will be answered. Well, as we think about this in terms of Advent this morning, what do we take from this regarding Advent life? This life that we have in this moment of Advent, not just these four weeks, but these four weeks as as an example, as a microcosm of this greater season of Advent that we're in, looking forward to the coming of Messiah. So let's think about that from Psalm 25. The first thing we see in the Psalm when we think about our time, as it relates to David's time, is that it is a time of trouble. It's a time of trouble. David is in distress, and ours is a time of distress. In fact, this is what we've been called to. But but let's think about it just from David's perspective. We don't exactly know the details of what David's having to go with, except in as much as we know David's life and the trouble that came into his kingdom and the, the betrayals that he had to deal with and the outside enemies that he had to deal with. He had enemies without, and he had enemy through, enemies within. And then he had enemies deep within, even inside his own soul, namely in his own sinfulness. So David was surrounded if you will, by enemies on every side. David is in trouble here. He's begging the Lord not to let him be ashamed. Verse 2, let not my enemies triumph over me. People are dealing treacherously with him, and he's having to engage this and deal with it, and he's he's troubled by it. He, He doesn't know the exact outcome of this story, and his soul is deeply distressed. And he's crying out to the Lord. So David's got his problems. And while we don't know all that they are, they're serious enough that it's causing him to write this psalm, this prayer to the Lord. But not only he, but Israel. Israel has her problems. David, as a king, is writing a psalm that is going to be a template of prayer for Israel in the midst of all of her Advent distresses. Our Old Testament reading today was from Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah is, you hear the word of the Lord coming through Jeremiah to a people who have been sent out into exile. Jerusalem, if you will, has been destroyed. The the prophecy that was in our word of exhortation from Luke 21 about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, in some sense, was a redo. Jerusalem had already been destroyed back in the days of of the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar had marched in and destroyed Jerusalem and dragged the inhabitants of Jerusalem out into exile. And why did that happen? 
It happened because of Israel's sin and the warning of the prophets again and again and again coming to them and calling them to flee from their idolatry and to trust in the Lord or else Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And eventually it was destroyed and the inhabitants of Jerusalem were taken out and scattered all through the Babylonian Empire. And Israel was now dwelling in a foreign land under judgment, longing for the day of restoration. And this psalm, Psalm 25, along with other psalms, was to be a pattern for them to cry out to the Lord, to ask him to deliver them from all their troubles and to let them not be ashamed here living in the cities of the Gentiles. But deliver us, Lord. Restore us for your namesake. So Israel had her troubles there out in exile. And we have our troubles. David's psalm was not just a prayer for him. It was a pattern for Israel, but it's also a pattern for you and for me. We have problems. We too are surrounded by enemies. And before we start to locate those enemies as like members of the other party and those kinds of things, there's bigger enemies you have to worry about than Republicans or Democrats. The world, the the reformers said, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what you got to worry about. That, that's really the battle, the arena we're in, is an arena in which we are facing a battle with the world. And by the world, we, we just mean generally those who hate Christ. Those who refuse, refuse to bow their knees and their heads to the Lord and acknowledge him as Lord. Jesus is very clear. They will hate you. They will persecute you. They will do the very things that David is crying out to the Lord about in Psalm 25. You and I need to expect that in this season of Advent. This is a time of trouble. This is a time of enmity. If you find yourself surrounded by trouble, then you're you're in the right place. This is what God has called you to. This is where God's people have historically been. And Jesus himself told his disciples, you're going to follow me, then you need to pick up your cross. That is my life where you see the people surrounding me, they're all crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Get used to it. Get used to having that ringing in your ear. The hostility of the world is an enmity that you're going to have to deal with in this season of Advent. It will come to an end, but not until that advent is fulfilled, not until Christ comes again. And until then, we need to deal with it. And we're going to find out how to deal with it. How does David deal with it? But the world. And then secondly, the flesh. You've got, David had enemies without, and he had enemies within his own kingdom, but he also had enemies within his own heart. We know that. Much of David's affliction came because of David's sin. David couldn't keep his hands off Bathsheba. And we know that when Nathan finally confronted him and David repented, Nathan said, that's good. That's great that you own that. However, the sword will never leave your kingdom and the child will die. Much of David's affliction and the trouble that he's got to deal with came because of the enemy within him, within his own heart. It's very easy for us 
to look out and spot a bunch of enemies out there. But the first place we've got to look for enemies is in our own heart. Our own sin. Our own tendency to have our hearts wander away from the Lord. But we have enemies there. And then, of course, the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So Advent is a season of battle. It's a season of dealing with enmity. It's a season of hostility. It's a season of trouble and affliction. And you got to know that. That's why Paul tells you to put on the full armor of God. Because every day you wake up, you walk out onto a battlefield. The, the day of sea of glass, the day of streets of gold, the day of peace and tranquility and the removal of sorrow and the removal of enmity is coming. Be encouraged by that. But now is the day of battle. Now is the day of affliction. <clears throat> and we see that with the psalmist. David is in trouble. And Israel's in trouble. And we're in trouble. That's the, that's the reality of Advent. Now, what else must characterize Advent? First, there's nothing you can do about that. It's a time of trouble and distress. But the second thing we see in David is what to do with it. And that is, it's a season of prayer. David doesn't just man up and say, okay, I've got to deal with it. He goes to the Lord in prayer. The psalm is the prayer. And yet in it, we hear the prayer of David. And this is given as a template to us for prayer. David takes his concern and he doesn't just white knuckle it or grit his teeth and get through it. He goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse four, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation and on you I wait all the day. David acknowledges right off the bat his own weakness. Lord, you've got to lead me here. You've got to show me your ways. There's a recognition right here. The king is acknowledging right off the bat, Lord, I need you. I'm asking you not to let my enemies triumph over me and not to allow me to be put to shame. Right? The prayer at the end, the whole psalm ends with that last request. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. David is coming before the Lord. He knows what to do with his distress and he comes and he lays it before the Lord. The whole end of this psalm is just this beautiful prayer. Turn yourself to me, he starts in verse 16. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me for I am desolate and afflicted. David, at this point in his life, has no problem acknowledging to the Lord Nothing in my hand I bring. Naked come to thee for dress. Foul I look, and foul I to thy fountain fly, right? Helpless look to thee for grace. Right? All those lines from Rock of Ages. David has no problem acknowledging his own insufficiency and his own weakness. I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. If I'm going to get out of this trouble, it is going to be by your hand, O oh Lord. 
right? That sort of American will find a way, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality is not here for David. Not that there's not a, a need for that and a virtue to that. We get that. But it cannot be the characteristic nature of, of our hearts. What our default position has to be, and then of course we've got to trust in the Lord, go and get to work and trust that he will lead and guide. But the default position of our hearts that needs to guide us is this humbling of ourselves before him and in acknowledging to him that Lord, if you don't do it, it's not getting done. If you don't lead me out of this distress, then this distress will overwhelm me. Lord, if you don't keep me from being ashamed, then ashamed I will be. If you don't keep my enemies from triumph overing me, then they're going to triumph over me. Bring me out of my distresses. Verse 18, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Fascinating that in the middle of this, and we're going to see that again earlier in the psalm in a second, that David's sin is very much on his mind in this psalm. It's not just I've got all these enemies out there. David's sin is on his mind as well. He does understand that I don't deserve deliverance. I don't deserve not to be ashamed. I don't deserve not to be overwhelmed. I, I do get how I des I do deserve this affliction. But Lord, I'm asking you to, to forgive my sins. He does it earlier again, in the, in the psalm, asking the Lord not to remember. We've been, the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about how, how the Lord remembers. Don't forget the Lord remembers, we've been saying. Remember that the Lord remembers. And in the psalm, you get that. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies, your loving kindness, for they are old, right? Your mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. We've been delighting in that over the past several weeks. Remember that. He's, he's, he's calling on the Lord to remember his covenantal promises. And then in verse seven, he says, but don't remember this. But Lord, do not remember my sins. So he's, he's asking the Lord to remember. And the Lord doesn't forget, but he's asking the Lord to forget something. Lord, do not remember the sins uh, of my youth, nor my transgressions. But according to your mercy, remember me. Lord, when you look at me, please don't let my sins define me. Please, when you look at me, don't see my sins, but rather look at me and see your mercy. When you look at me, let your mercy cover me so that when you look at me, there is delight and not disgust. Because if you see me for who I am, how can there be anything but disgust? This is what we confess weekly. It's, it's very hard to say. And again, as we've talked about, I think people could listen to our the liturgy of this church and the weekly reminder of sin and the call to confession. And they could say, you, you, you guys are like sadistic, you know, masochistic. It's like, why this constant groveling over your sin? But again, we take our cue from the Psalms. David knows as he comes to the Lord Look, I have an Advent desire and hope, but in and of myself, I don't deserve any of it. I don't deserve deliverance. And so what I'm asking you, Lord, is not to treat me as I deserve. Beware in our society for calls for justice, even social justice. 
For cries for justice, even social justice, apart from Christ, are calls for suicide. Warnings to the person who calls out for justice. Now, at the same time, cries for justice are a good thing. They're just not a great thing to the unjust. And that's the problem. If we receive justice, who among us will stand? We don't need social justice. What we need is social mercy. We need social love. We need social grace, social charity, social kindness. That's what we need. And David is calling on the Lord, not for justice. He's making a request, no doubt, but it's a request that must be wrapped in mercy. Lord, forgive my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep me, keep my soul, deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. So the first thing we see in Advent is trouble. Be prepared. Do not be shook, though we tend to be. Let us not be shook when we find ourselves in distress and trouble. Tis the season. At the same time, know what to do with it. Like David, let us in the season of Advent wear out our knees and all our pants because we find ourselves before the Lord, calling out to him, not just asking for deliverance, though we are, but asking for guidance, wisdom. Lead me, O Lord, according to your ways. I, I, I don't know what to do. Guide me, O Lord, confessing your sins. Then thirdly, so first trouble, secondly, Advent prayer, and then thirdly, an Advent expectation. David does expect that the Lord will in fact deliver. He's not hoping against hope. He's expectant that the Lord is going to do this. And I think it's important, and we hear this in, in the Jeremiah passage. Go back and read that Jeremiah passage. What a beautiful passage in Jeremiah 33. As the Lord says, one, you're here because of your sins and you didn't listen to me and you know now here you are out in, out in Babylon. But then he says, but watch what I'm going to do. And you are going to be amazed. And not only are you going to be amazed, but all the nations are going to be amazed when they see the mercy that I extend to you. Well, David, who of course predates Jeremiah, also has this expectation Right? He expects that the Lord is, in fact, going to remember his mercy and his covenant goodness. Why? Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice. The humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. David has supreme confidence in what the Lord's going to do. And we can have that confidence too, but notice for a second who it is that David says 
can have this Advent confidence. It's the humble. It's the humble. Again, it's it's not the self-willed. It's not the guy or the woman who grits their teeth and says, I'll find a way. It's the one who humbles himself or herself before the Lord. It is the humble, verse 9, whom the Lord teaches his way. And what does that humility look like in this psalm? We've already said it. It looks like acknowledging your weakness and your distress. That should be your first thing. Our first thing is to bring our problems before the Lord and acknowledge these are problems, Lord. And I need you in this. It's the acknowledgement that he is God. Then secondly, humility looks like confessing your sins. Acknowledging who you are. The first thing to do is acknowledge who he is. And the second thing is to acknowledge who you are. To such as confess their sins. God is gracious. And he is merciful. And David calls the Lord to do this in verse 11. For your name's sake, Lord. And even that, think about that. For your name's sake, Lord. We could talk about this in Sunday school because I think it's a nice little rabbit trail to go down. A good, not a rabbit trail, a very important trail. But David's, David's passion for the name of the Lord. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Notice he doesn't even say, for your servant's sake. If he said that, we'd all read it. We'd be absolutely fine with it. For your servant's sake, O Lord, pardon, your, pardon my iniquity. That would make complete sense to us. No problem. And that's not a bad thing to say, but it's not what he says. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. Who, who is the who can have this advent expectation? The humble, the one who desires the name of the Lord to be magnified. Guess what? You can be absolutely confident your prayers will come true because the Lord is going to glorify his name. The Lord's name is going to be great. I don't know if you remember that moment in John chapter 12 when Jesus says, My soul is troubled, but what shall I say? You know, what, what am I, I'm, I'm, I'm in distress, but what am I going to say? Deliver me from this hour? No, it's for this hour that I've come, right? This Tis the season. This is what I've been called to do. So here's what I'll say, Jesus says. Father, glorify your name. And a voice comes out of heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And the disciples say, well, what was that? What was that sound? What was that voice? And Jesus says to them, that voice was not for me. I already know the Father's going to glorify his name, and I am so content in that. That's my food and my drink is knowing that. That voice was for you. That voice was for you so that you, when in a day or two, you see the deepest darkness you could ever imagine, the deepest distress, namely Messiah hanging upon a cross, and you think all your dreams are shattered. You think that your enemies have triumphed over you. You think that you have been put to shame. You think it's over. You remember the voice you heard. I have glorified my name, and I will glorify my name. And if your desire, like David's, is for the namesake of the Lord to be great then be confident. You can have great Advent expectation because it is coming. It has come and it is coming. Such as humble themselves, 
such as confess their sins, such as those who acknowledge that God is God, such as those who desire the greatness of the name of the Lord, they can have great Advent expectation. The same confidence David has. They and we may have Advent expectation if that's our heart. Humble before the Lord, confessing our sins, keeping his covenant. Right, Verse 10, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Are you a covenant keeper? Does keeping the covenant with God matter to you? He, he says it another way a little further down. Those who fear the Lord. Right? Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach his way, the way he chooses. He himself will dwell in prosperity. The one who fears the Lord, the one who has the covenant of God as the lens through which he or she views all things, the thing that guides you in your wisdom, the thing that sets your priorities, the things that quenches your fear. Is it the covenantal promises of God? Is what guides you in wisdom and obedience the covenantal law of God and his commands? Is the fear of the Lord always before your eyes? If so, be confident in your Advent expectation. In the midst of your trouble, you may have great expectation that the Lord is going to deliver you, that the Lord is going to make his name great by delivering you. But if not, right, if we are not humble, if we are not those who trust the Lord, if we are not those who fear the Lord, if we are not those who keep the covenant of our God, then we ought not have expectations such as these. That, that, there's, there's a stark contrast here, I think, tucked into this psalm. And we ought to hear it. We ought to be reminded again that it is God's covenant people who may have the joyous Advent expectation. And such, as, such are we. But I want to call us once again in this season of Advent, to the warnings. When Jesus comes in that Luke 21 passage, he is warning his people, do not set your affections on Jerusalem. Set your affections on me. In the Jeremiah, 20, in the Jeremiah 33 passage, he is calling them to set their affections on him. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to show myself to be your God, your deliverer, and I'm going to do it for my name's sake. And I want to call you once again not to take for granted this Advent hope, but to lay hold of it, to be sure that it is yours, that you with David fear the Lord, that you with David humble yourself and call the Lord to teach you his way, that you like David Fall before the Lord, acknowledging your own weakness. If so, then indeed, brothers and sisters, you may have supreme confidence in this season of Advent. As we look forward, in the midst of our own trouble, in the midst of our own afflictions, as we look forward to the coming of our King on that great day of glory, you may have confidence that indeed He will come and you will be delivered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have nothing in our hands to bring. 
We confess that we are helpless and look to thee for grace. Naked, look to thee for dress. Foul, we to thy fountain fly. Heavenly Father, we pray indeed that you would remember your mercy, but that you would not remember us according to our sins. But that as you see us, you would see us in your mercy. As you see us, you would see us through the blood and righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Lord, come and redeem Israel. And we thank you that we stand in a place where we have seen that promise fulfilled, and yet we are in a place in which we long for it to be finally consummated. So, Father, stir our hearts in this season of Advent to trust in you and to fear you in all our ways and throughout all our days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.